Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. We are talking about Christology. If you weren't here last week, uh, Matthew is going to go through uh, a series called Christology or the Theology of Christ. And so last week he talked about the pre-incarnation of Christ, what that field of study is, and he talked about Christophanies as well, appearances of Christ. So we are in that series, and we're going to continue that. And today we're going to be talking about the hypostatic union, or the incarnation of Christ more specifically. So last week he talked about pre-incarnation, and that can kind of be weird for us to understand that Jesus of Nazareth is in time. He came into existence in time. He has not always been. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has always been. Father, Son, and Spirit from eternal past or eternity past. And then the Son of God incarnated, which we'll talk about tonight, uh, through Mary and we have Jesus of Nazareth. So then we have the hypostatic union. So pre-incarnation is that Jesus of Nazareth was not eternal eternity past, but the Son of God was eternity past. Does that make sense, everybody? Because that that'll be kind of important coming through tonight. Correct. Uh, for those that didn't hear, he asked about the angel wrestling with Jacob. And that wasn't Jesus, that was the Son of God was the question. Yes, it depends on where you fall with that, but most, most scholars agree that that is a Christophany. Um, so that is the Son of God who is not yet Jesus of Nazareth. Does that make sense? So we have two things happening, and we'll see the joining of those two natures tonight. So we'll be talking about Christ being truly divine and truly human and that language is important for us and i like the historic language of truly divine truly human instead of fully divine or fully human because when you think of things that are full there are increments before you get full so if you've got a glass of water you keep adding ounces eventually it does get full but it takes the uh, gradations of ounces of water to fill up that glass and we don't want to accidentally think that god is made of parts Two parts of holiness, three parts of love, five parts of wisdom. You add it all up, you fill up the God bucket, and there you have God. No, so we say truly God and truly man, so that way we communicate the isness of God, the I am that I am. He is holy. He is wisdom. He is light, all of these things. So this language that we use, it's very precise, and it's very important to try to be as, as precise as we can. And so when we start looking at the incarnation with John, we'll be in John chapter 1, if you want to go ahead and turn there. But immediately we're confronted with the question of why we should listen to John. 
And this is things that you hear all the time. So from Muslim communities, they will say, Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. It's all of his apostles that claimed that for him. But it wasn't Jesus who did that. So the question is, is why do we listen to John? Well, because whose apostle does John belong to? He is whose apostle? Christ's apostle. He is he belongs to him. Same thing with Paul when people say, well, Jesus never talked about homosexuality or anything of that nature. That's all Paul. Well, why should you listen to Paul? Because it's his apostle. It is his apostle that he endows with authority to send out and proclaim his message. Same thing that we see in the Old Testament. God speaks down to Moses, and then Moses goes and spreads the message of God with authority. So you see that image of from above and then out. And then Moses carries that on as well. Moses gets Aaron. He speaks to Aaron, and Aaron goes out and speaks with the same authority of the original source. And so we see that with Christ. God, the Father, speaks and gives all authority to Christ, who goes and spreads the message and the gospel. And then Christ does the exact same thing. He endows authority and power to the apostles through his Holy Spirit, and they exercise Christ's authority as well. So we listen to John and Paul because they are Christ's apostles, and so the authority that we hear tonight is from Christ himself. And so the first point that I want you to take away tonight is who God is, and the first one being is God is the God of incarnation. Incarnation. That's a good $5 word for you. But we'll look at John 1, 1 through 18. Let's look at this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, who has made him known. This is the word of the Lord, and this is what is called John's prologue. And this prologue is where we start to see the doctrine of incarnation unfold. If you look in verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the prologue 
gives us ground for the incarnation. And of course, who is the word? He, he has a case that he lays out before he gets there. He says the word at the beginning, he identifies it. He says this was the light of the world. John testified to the light. So ergo, when we come down to verse 14, who are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus. Jesus is the incarnate son of God. And Jesus is the logos of God or logos of God. And that literally means <laughs> word, but there's also several meanings for several different audiences when John is preaching this or writing this. So the Greeks would have their idea of what the logos is. The Hebrew philosophers would have their idea of what logos means. And obviously John provides clarification of what that is. In the beginning was the word, the logos. The Greek philosophers, logos was reason, and it was an it. It was reason, as in logic. That's where we get our word logic from. For the Greeks, it was logic, and it was it. But John clarifies, logos is the word, and it's not an it. It is a what? A he. It is a he. Philos, logos, was a principle. But John's logos is what? A person. He provides further clarification. Logos does not explain Jesus. Jesus explains the Logos. And we're going through this book with Dr. Aiken, where we're getting a lot of our kind of outline material from. And he says on page 38 of this book, says, The Greeks were correct in affirming we could not reach the Logos. John informs us that we need not despair. The Logos came down and lived among us. To the Greeks, Logos is reason. To the Jews, Logos is the word or wisdom. In John, these ideas find new meaning as they are embodied in a person, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the Logos, the word of God. But we also have theological truths that we can get as we look at this prologue of who the Logos is and what are some of the elements of the word of God or the incarnate word of God. The first thing we see is that the Logos is eternal in the beginning, meaning before time, eternity past. That's the best language that we have, which is still inaccurate. Eternity past is in the beginning. The word was in the beginning, so the Logos is what? It's eternal. That's where he starts. In the beginning was the word. So he is eternal, but he is also distinct from what we're talking about. In the beginning was the Word, eternal, and the Word was what? With God. So this is a really important distinction. The Word was with God, which means what? If you're, if you're with it, you're not exactly the same thing, right? So if I'm with Jared, that means I'm not Jared because I'm with Jared. But here we see that distinction within the Godhead. And we see this distinction all the time. We've seen it even in Genesis 1.1. Because this is what John is referencing. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and without void. And what? The spirit of God hovered over the waters. So you've got the father, the spirit. And then he said the word, let there be light. And so you have those distinctions right there in the first verse of the Bible. And John is giving more emphasis there that the word was with God. There is a distinction between God the Son and God the Father in a way because the third thing is is that the logos is identified as truly divine it's not only distinct or merely distinct the word was with god and what the word was 
God. And that's just, that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. It, when you start talking about the Trinity or the hypostatic union of Christ and things of that nature, that, it kind of boggles us. It, it's mysterious. It's not a contradiction. In one way, he is with God as something distinct from God the Father. But in another way, he is God. The Word was with God and the Word was God. So we have these categories to help us kind of wrestle with this. So you have the one God in three persons. The second person has two natures. So those are distinct in different ways, but ultimately he was God himself. And we see that in verse 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything that was made. So what does that tell us? The Logos, Christ, the Son of God, was not created. And why is that? Because in verse 3 it says, All things were made through him, and without him uh, was not anything made that was made. So if the Son of God, if through the Son of God all things were created, what does that mean? Before time and space and matter was created, he was. So he was not created because he obviously had to exist if all things were made through him. So the prerequisite that you need for all things being made through the Son of God is he has to be not created. He has to have the same essence as what we know as God the Father. God the Father was not created. God the Son was not created. God the Spirit was not created. But all things were made through the Son. And we see that by the, the power of his word, as the catechisms say. So the Logos is not created in verse 3. And finally, the Logos took on flesh in verse 14 and became truly human as well. V verse 14, that's, the, that's the, the prime passage here. It says, and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. He became truly human. Not just what, we, what you might see in Greek mythology as a demigod, where it's more than man, but not quite God. This, that in-between type state. No, no, no. He is truly God because all things were made through him. He wasn't created. He was in the beginning. He is eternal but distinct. And then he took on flesh. The Son of God came in, became incarnate, took on flesh, and is now truly human. Truly God and truly human. But the truly human part is actually what the early church struggled with. Now when people think of Jesus, they don't think, truly God. He was just a good man, a good prophet. That's what you hear. And so we have to battle the deity of Christ in our day. But really in the early church, everybody was convinced that he was, he was definitely God. They were not convinced sometimes that he was truly human. Because if he's God, I mean, that, that's got a lot of implications. How does, how does God die? Well, how does God rise? Why did he eat? And so we see truly God and truly human because he was truly human. He was tired and thirsty in John 4, 6, and 7. So how does God become tired and thirsty? Right? It, it boggles the mind a little bit. And so the way that we try to, to wrestle with this is to say according to the human nature or according to the divine nature. So, Son of God, eternal, eternal past, Father, Son, and Spirit, was not hungry, correct? Was not thirsty. They, the, the Godhead needs nothing. They're self-sufficient. But 
the Son of God took on flesh, and according to the human nature, he was tired and thirsty. In John eleven thirty five, 35, it says that he wept. And we can add in your mind, add it, according to the human nature. He was troubled in his spirit, John 12, 17. He bled and died, John 19, 30, without becoming less than God, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So he really is truly human and truly God. So he unpacks the deity first, and then he gets to the humanity. Both of these are true. True in different ways. Two natures, one person. He took upon himself complete humanity, but with one important distinction, without sin. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Hebrews 4.15, that he was born without sin. That is a uniqueness within his human nature as well. But if you think about it, that doesn't make him less human because he was born without sin. It makes him more human. So if you think when Adam was created, Adam and Eve, they were not created with sin, right? The freedom to choose. They were not created sinful. So Christ is actually more human than we are because we are born into sin. So he is born into this world, takes on flesh, but without sin. And the question is, is how did, he, how did he pull that off? How is it that he is without sin? And the secret, if you would, that God implored here is, what, the virgin birth. Or, more accurately, the virgin conception, right? The birth was not miraculous. She gave birth just like any other woman to a baby, just like anybody else. That's not the miraculous part. The conception is the miraculous part. That is utterly different, and that completely changes the game. And we have two reasons why that is incredibly significant. If you don't have the virgin conception, you don't have Jesus Christ being the Son of God. Plain and simple. It goes with it. Because in Israel, any type of sign that dealt with the womb was a sign that something monumentous was about to happen to Israel, specifically something that was big in regards to redemption. So we see examples of this scene with the births of Isaac or Samson or Samuel, John the Baptist. It's an indication whenever God intercedes into the womb of a woman that something amazing is about to happen, and it's going to have something to do with redemption. And every Israelite would have known this. So anything that miraculous happens that a barren woman now uh, has a child because God blessed that union to bear fruit. They know that's something special. We need to start paying attention to what God's going to do. So that's already on their radar. So that's pretty neat, but it's not as good as what? A virgin conception. That is utterly unique. So in the, in the Jewish mind, when you read this, you're like, not only is this special, but this is extra special. We need to pay attention here. Something redemptive is about to happen. So when the angel announces the birth of Jesus to Joseph, he quotes Isaiah 7:14 that says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. 
And of course, we see that quotation in all the Gospels as well. Now, there's debate among scholars about the word virgin. So if, you, if you've heard any of the Christian atheist debates that I, I like to watch, like William Lane Craig and Christopher Hitchens, it almost always comes up that the, the argument will be the word virgin here in Isaiah 7 could mean young girl or virgin, right? And that's true. But what we see in the Gospels in the Greek, that they obviously read it as the virgin shall conceive. Because in the Greek, it's a very specific word that only means virgin. So it's a little dishonest to say that it can mean this or that. No, in the Greek, it really does mean virgin. So this is a virgin conception. And of course, when Isaiah uh, gave this prophecy, when this came from God, it was to show that the king was going to be defeated and he was going to redeem his people. And so we see that in Matthew, when Matthew quotes this, he says, God's going to do the same thing, that that was the shadow, this is the fulfillment. So that's still going on. Now, the virgin birth or the virgin conception is also important because that is what keeps sin from entering in the human nature of Christ. All right, so... Eve fell first. It's her fault, but whose responsibility was it? Adam. That's why Adam gets the blame, right? It was his fault. It is his responsibility. And so through Adam, sin comes to us all. We're all born through sin. If you were here for when Jarrett preached that in Adam, all have sinned. We're all part of that sin seed, if you would. So we're born into sin, and that's a problem. We're all going to sin no matter what. No, no doubt. So what do you do about that? God cuts off the line in which we inherit sin all the way from Adam. He cuts that off and he interjects the spirit of God into the equation. So now sin is not entering into Christ because the source was cut off at the virgin conception. So if you don't have the virgin conception, you don't have the deity of Christ. You don't have the atonement of Christ. You must take that serious. It is a real virgin conception, and it is absolutely crucial because he took upon complete humanity, but without sin. The son did not become man. He became God-man, truly God, truly human. If you leave with nothing else, those two words, truly God, truly human. This is the God of the incarnation. Second tonight, we have the God of humiliation. Turn to Philippians 2. Philippians 2. We're going to be in verses 5 through 11. I'm also in the ESV if you're using your phone. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. The God of humiliation. It reads, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, for in, for he, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
So this is where we start to see the hypostatic union. So if you're taking notes, that's an important one. Hypostatic union. Hypostatic being one word. The two natures joining together. The hypostatic union. And then we also have the doctrine of kenosis, which we'll talk about here. So these are some $10 words, and I realize that. But it's okay to reach to the, the top shelf just every now and then. And we don't, we don't get to do that all the time. But here we see that the hypostatic union is in play in verse 6 and in verse 7. Two distinct verses, but it points to the same person. In verse 6 it says, Who, this is Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And the form of God is the word morphe, which literally means the essential nature of being, the, es the essence of of that being. So when he says the morphe of God, the form of God, he is the being God. That's where we get truly God, the essence, the being of God. But he doesn't leave it there. If you look at verse 7, what does he say? But he emptied himself by what? Taking on the form of a servant. Morphe, again, the essence, the true essence of being of a servant as well. True essence and being of God, verse 6. Verse 7, true essence and being of what a servant. And what is the servant? It goes on to say, being born in what? The likeness of men. So, truly the essence of God and truly the essence of man being found in human form. Morphe, it is absolutely both of these. You can't sacrifice one for the other. They're distinct, but they're not separate. That's the language that theologians like to use. They are joined, but not mixed. Distinct, but not separate. So the true and better Adam is being put on display. Adam was humanity seeking deity in the beginning. And now Christ, the better Adam, the true and better Adam, is deity seeking man. So you kind of see this topsy-turvy picture here. With Christ being what is called the true and better Adam, that's what we sing in Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Come behold the wondrous mystery, see the true and better Adam and what he's done. Because it's all pointing back to Genesis. It's all pointing back to the garden and God correcting all the faults that we displayed in the garden. All the stuff that went wrong, God is making that new and right. And so you have this topsy-turvy image of Adam in Christ. So Adam was what? He was made in the divine image. Made in the divine image. But Christ is the very essence of God. He is the image in which Adam was made. So we see the shadow, the light. Adam thought it a prize to be, to be grasped, to be as God. Satan tempted him, saying, if you do this, you're just going to be as God. And that temptation was like, yeah, I'll, I mean, who doesn't want that? So Adam reaches down and tries to grasp to be God, whereas Christ... The Son of God thought it not a prize to be grasped to be as God. And so he took on flesh. He emptied himself, which is kenosis. Now, Adam aspired to what? A reputation, to be like God. Christ made himself of no reputation. Adam was spurned by being God's servant. He did not want to serve God. He wanted to serve himself because he wanted to be God. But what do we hear in Philippians 2? Christ took upon himself the form 
of a servant. You see that topsy-turvy there? It's a true and better Adam. Adam sought to be in the very likeness of God. Christ was made in the likeness of man. He was already God, the Son of God, and then it took on flesh to be in the likeness of man. Adam, being found in fashion as man, exalted himself, and he became what? Disobedient unto death. So Adam disobeyed and he died. Christ obeyed, and what happened? He died, right? The same result of the two Adams, but the obedience versus the disobedience makes all the difference. So being found in the fashion as man, Romans 8, 3, humbled himself and became obedient unto death. And finally, Adam was condemned and disgraced, but what's the result of Christ? He was highly exalted by God and given the name in the position of Lord. So the Son of God comes down, condescends to us, takes on flesh, crucified. The power of God raises him. The two natures are exalted to where the one nature came from to begin with, the right hand of God. So we see this, this Adam situation that got us all in this mess. That's why you're all screwed up here is because of Adam. Now you can be made right because of Christ. It's the topsy-turvy nature of that that is what the god of humiliation accomplishes thirdly today let's look at the god of creation go to colossians 1 just the just the next book over it's probably just one maybe two pages tops colossians 1 this is the god of creation so we have the god of incarnation the god of humiliation and the god of creation in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So here we see one of the strongest statements for the incarnation of God the Son to Jesus of Nazareth in verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God, verse 19, was pleased to dwell within Jesus of Nazareth. So it doesn't get any more clear than that. The fullness, everything about God, the divine nature condescended, and it was pleased to dwell with, <laughs> with the human nature. That's probably the best language. And so Christ here is depicted as Lord of creation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of what? All creation. So he is the Lord of creation. And he is the actual image of God. Notice that he is not made in the image of God like we are. This is where it is. He is the image of God in which man is made. So he is the image of God. And it also says that he is what? The firstborn of all creation. And so this is where some of your cults come in and say, ah, see, Jesus was the firstborn of all creation. He was created. All right, and that's a mistake because we see, if you just keep on reading a little bit, that firstborn of all creation is to give what? 
preeminence, to, to give supremacy. Creation flowed from him because he's going to contrast this. And later on, he actually says at the end of verse 18, preeminent. So it's not firstborn in creation as in end time came into being was the first creation of God the Father. No, he is preeminent because what it says right next in verse 16, for by him all things were created. So if he was created and didn't exist, how did he come into being? Well, you can't. That's impossible. It's logically impossible. And God is the word. He is the logos. He is logic itself. If you aren't in existence and all things come into existence through you, you have to be what? You have to be eternal. There's no other way. So it can't be that Jesus or the Son of God was the first thing created by God the Father because it says all things were created in heaven and on earth and visible and visible whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authority. He is the firstborn of all creation. And we see that all things were created through him. Genesis 1. God spoke, what? The word, and then it was so. So all things came into being by the power of his word, which is the Son of God. We also see that he is the sustainer of all things. He is the sustainer of all things in verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him, in him all things hold together. So not only is he God because he created all things, he is still God today because he is sustaining all things. He continues to prove his truly divine nature by sustaining all things. He created all things, and he sustains all things. He is truly God, then and truly God, now. So he is Lord of creation. But he's also, what the point that he's getting to is that Christ, because he is Lord of creation, means what? He's Lord of the church in verse 18. Look at this together. Verse 18, it says, and he is what? The head of the body. What's the body? The church. Christ is the head of the body, the church. So he is the Lord of the church. Christ, because the church is initiated because of what Christ done. So we're told that he is what? The firstborn from the dead. So he's the head of the church because he's the firstborn of the dead. Now that's interesting language, right? He's the firstborn of creation. And he's the firstborn of the dead. You, you see that kind of that uh, duality that's placed against each other. It's very stylistic here. He is Lord over life and he is Lord over death. He is sovereign over all things. It's another way of saying he is sovereignly ruling and sustaining all things. Life, death, he's the first one, the firstborn of the dead. Meaning he is the first person to truly be resurrected. And you might say, well, there's lots of resurrections, uh, Lazarus and Jairus' daughter, and there's 10 other resurrections. Those are closer to what we might call resuscitations, very miraculous resuscitations, because Lazarus eventually what? Died. He was not raised to not die again, whereas Christ, by the power of God, was raised to never die again. So that's why he's the firstborn of the dead from the dead. He is the first one to truly be resurrected and to be resurrected and to never die again. And of course, the firstborn here, it says it right at the end of verse 18, to, that he might be what? 
preeminent. So this is supremacy and rank, precedence and time, creative initiative. This is not, he was the first person to die. That's obviously not true. It can't mean that. So you can read that back to the firstborn of all creation. He's not the first one created. It's preeminence and supremacy of this. So Christ is the Lord of the church because Christ is the very essence of God. It says, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So he is the very essence of God. Christ lacks nothing. Anything that is of God is of the Son of God as well. There is nothing that God the Father has that God the Son doesn't have, that God the Spirit doesn't have. All three persons of the Godhead contain the very essence of God. This is the God of creation. And finally, tonight, we're going to talk about the God of Revelation in Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1, the God of Revelation. This is just uh, Jennifer's favorite verse, right? Hebrews 1 through 4. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in the last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become a much superior to angels as the name he has inherited and more excellent than theirs. So this God, the Son of God, is the God of revelation. And what's important here is we see that God actually speaks. I think it was Francis Schaeffer who said, I only have two questions. Who is God and can he speak to us? Because if he does, that's important. And we see in verse 1 that God, long ago, even before the incarnation of uh, Jesus of Nazareth, he was a speaking God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So he is a speaking God from the beginning. He is communicating to his creation. And in times long ago, he spoke through the prophets or visions or things of that nature. He says in many times and in various ways, he spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But the whole point of the book of Hebrews is to show that Jesus is what? He's better, right? He's better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. He's better than Moses. He's better than Adam. So each thing that Hebrew deal, Hebrews deals with is that Jesus is better. So the same thing here. God is a God who speaks, and he spoke through the prophets. But now, through Jesus, he is speaking to us in a better way. God is speaking. He spoke through the prophets, which was inerrant, right? When God said something to the prophets and they communicated that, that's inerrant, without error, but it was also incomplete. It was also incomplete. It was a promise, but not fulfillment. And now he speaks more clearly through his son. He spoke then, but he speaks more clearly now. The shadow and the light. And of course, the shadow points to the light. So if the sun's right here, and I'm standing here, you see the shadow on the ground. Well, you don't have the shadow unless you have what? The light. Without the light, you don't, without the real thing, 
you don't have the shadow. And so he spoke through the prophets, that's the shadow. And now he speaks more clearly in a better way because he has spoken decisively in his son. But second, he has shown himself decisively in Jesus. He is expressing himself through Jesus himself. And so we see, I think, seven, seven descriptions that we have of Jesus. He is the divine inheritor. Look at the end of verse 2. The heir of all things. God the Father appointed him the heir of all things. He is the divine inheritor. He is also the divine creator in 2C. He created the world through him. Also, he created the world. So he's the divine inheritor. He's the divine creator. He is also the divine revealer, the radiance, if you notice in verse 3. He is the radiance of what? The glory of God. He is the radiance. He's the divine revealer. He is the divine character, the essence, the being of God. Because he is what? The exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint. The exact same. Not just imaging, but is the essence. He is the divine character. He's also in 3C, the divine sustainer, because he what? And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It came into being through Christ, and it is upheld by Christ. He's God then, he's God now, because he is the divine sustainer. The sixth thing in 3D is he is the divine redeemer, because after making what? Purifications, purification for sins, which is one of his priestly office. The threefold office of Christ. He is the high priest and he makes purification for sins. So he is the divine redeemer of his people. And finally, he is the divine savior. Because he made the purification for sins, he what? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that's great language. The work is already done. He's sitting. There's no more work to be done. So he is the divine savior. The complete saving work of Christ. So God is displaying himself fully and more clearly in the person of Christ. And so because of this display of he speaks clear, he's shown, showing the Father more clearly than we've ever seen before, he is what? He is to be honored and he is to be worshipped. Why? Because he is the creator. Remember, he made all things and he sustains all things. He is the creator. And of course, John uses, or uh, he, the first few verses uses angels and Jesus as a comparing and contrasting. Compares Jesus and Moses and all the different characters. And really, angels are pretty good, right? So if you've got your three types of categories, you've got people, humans, angels, God. There's no in-between. But what we're seeing here is that Jesus is better than angels. So what, what category does that put you in? If you're better than angels, that puts you in the God category. There's no other category ab- above that. You got God, angels, people. They're probably fallen angels down there, demons. So angels are good, but Jesus is the best. Angels are servants. Jesus is sovereign. Angels are messengers, but Jesus is sovereign. Angels are creatures, but Jesus is what? The creator. Angels are workers for God, messengers of God. Jesus is what? Worshipped. In verse 6, it says, And again, when he brings the firstborn, remember the firstborn of creation, 
firstborn of the dead. When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels, what? Worship him. Worship who? The firstborn. We've already talked about who's the firstborn. The firstborn of creation, the firstborn of the dead is Jesus. It's the good Sunday school. So that's why we worship Jesus. So God is honored when we worship Jesus because Jesus is exalted at the right hand of the Father. He therefore is better. What else could you worship that would be better than Jesus? Jesus is better in person. He is God. Jesus is better in work. He solved the problem of sin. Jesus is better in position. He is seated at the right hand of God. God has many servants, as Achan says, but only one son. And his son's name is Jesus. And this Jesus that we know of, Jesus of Nazareth, is truly God, truly man. Distinct but not separate natures. One but not mixed. So you have one essence of God in three persons. The second person has two natures, truly divine, truly human, and that is why we worship him, because he mediated between man and God, because there was a, a gaping gulf between man and God because of our sin. God's the only one that can overcome this gulf, but he's got to represent what? Both parties. He can appease God because he's God, but he can intermediate for us because he is truly man as well you need both of these in order for salvation to be possible at all otherwise god will be too far off or if he's only man he's too close he's not going to make it up there just like we aren't you need both of these coming together in what we call the hypostatic union so truly divine truly man hypostatic union so if you don't leave without anything else take those three truly divine truly man and this is what we call the hypostatic union of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have provided a better option, a better, better than angels, better than Moses, better than Adam, better in every way. We thank you for what you have accomplished through him. And I pray that you will open our hearts and minds to worship him fully because he is better. The angels know this, and I hope that you show this to us more clearly each and every day that he, Christ, is to be worshipped and that you, the Father, are glorified when we do this. I pray that you forgive us of our sins, that you will continue to bless our time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.